Hey, everybody. Hi. Wait, I'm not everybody, but hi. Uh, well, you're, you're, you're part of the subset that is I'm, everybody. I'm somebody. Uh, this week, we have something special planned mm-hmm. for you all. We had a... This is an episode that wouldn't have actually existed without the TechPod uh, as it is, but specifically the TechPod Discord. Uh, we have uh, a representative from the Pine64 group coming on the show to talk about their products and their open source stuff and all that. And it's we th- we thought it'd be an interesting thing to have on both feeds. Honestly, it's on the yeah. FosPod feed. It's on the TechPod feed. We apologize for the double dip this week. Yeah, but you're, you're, you're traveling. I'm I'm going and, to I'm dealing with some family stuff and uh, yeah and I'm not it, it was it was a good time to have a uh, Fosspod episode. Also, Brad, you're in the middle of the of the the launch of a million games or mm-hmm. maybe the launch of eight games, as the case may be. Yes. Uh, so it's it's been a lot of talking for both yeah. of us this week. Games and, and and not E3 streams like they would be E3 streams if E3 hadn't died. But nope, there's no E3. Just streams. Uh, but yeah, we'll be back next week with a regular episode. And thank you all for listening. Uh, and stay tuned till the end of the show for the patron thank yous. I think one of my favorite categories of hardware is the the thing that you hear about. And you're like, wow, that sounds too good to be true. Right? Yeah. Like, it's like the, th- the thing you would love to get on Christmas morning. <laughs> Yeah, but or or like, hey, here's a CPU from Intel or AMD that you can overclock fifty percent over its stock clocks, yes. or um, you know, uh, 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 some some sort of some sort of device that you're like, wow, that is not just incredible; it's better than anything I have, but also it's very very inexpensive. Yes, it's the it's the deep bang for the buck category of product. Exactly, and there's a, one of those that came up for us fairly recently in the TechPod Discord. It initially sounded like, and I actually say this. I actually say this in the interview. I it sounded like an Internet of Shit thing, right? Like some <laughs> yes. unnecessarily connected device with firmware and all sorts of nonsense. When you've had an analog thing that's been built for the same same way since the fifties uh, in your house already, and then I got it, mm-hmm. and I was like, "This is incredible! This is an incredible device. It's changed the way I do that kind of work, and it costs like twenty five dollars." We're talking about the Pinesill, mm-hmm. in case you didn't know. It's a it's an open source Risk Five powered soldering iron that is powered off of a USB C plug, or you can use a barrel connector if you want. You can plug it into a lot of USB power supplies. It needs specific kind. Of, it has specific requirements, but they're still readily available. And it's easily the best soldering iron I've ever owned. And I followed the exact same trajectory you did. The first time you told me about it, I was like, why in God's name do we need our soldering irons to be smart now? And now that I bought one (laughs) and used it, I totally get it. And now we are following that trail all the way back to the source and talking to the company that makes both that and a bunch of other products that also follow that same philosophy. Welcome to the FosPod. I'm Will. I'm Brad. This week's FosPod is brought to you by Google Open Source. They bring all of the value of open source to Google and all of the resources of Google to open source. Brad, I'm really excited to have this conversation because I didn't fully appreciate how broad the range of products that 
Pine 64 creates. I didn't know about their, like coming into this interview before we started doing the research, I didn't know anything about the origins of the company, what they've been doing, what they're looking forward in the, in the future, what they do off as kind of weird side projects. It's kind of all side projects. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting company. It's an interesting application of open source. They are, I think, probably a more open hardware company than any of the other hardware folks we've talked to. And we're going to talk to Wukash Arinchensky, who's a senior advisor at the Pine64 project, Mm -hmm. about the whole thing right now. Before we get any further, can you kind of give us the rundown of the breadth of the offering and all the different places that Pine64 has has their hands in? Yes, and we never thought we'd be making a soldering iron. It was supposed to be a complete side project. But yes, um, so soldering iron, a smartwatch, amazing piece of uh, kit, uh, which we're really proud of. Two smartphones, the PinePhone and PinePhone Pro. Currently a laptop, PineBook Pro. Tablets, which includes an uh, e-paper reader, and which isn't available to the public per se, but if you're a developer, you can you can get a unit to develop on. Two tablets, one of which is the first tablet with a RISC-V uh, SOC in the world, at least to my knowledge, as well as a number of uh, maker uh, hardware, including uh, quite specialized uh, power supply units and, and, and accessories for the phone, such as the specialized back cases, which allow the, the phones uh, functionality to be expanded as well as obviously a whole wide range of single board computers uh, yeah sure. like i was gonna say the single board computers for everything from like mm. that are just standard single board computers that we all know and love all the way up to things that like are ip cameras that are power over, powered over ethernet that you mm. can jam into whatever case you want and mm-hmm. it's a fascinating range of projects how did you get involved how did you get started with the project how did you get how did you get involved i started in 2015, right after the Kickstarter. So uh, I wasn't a part of the Kickstarter campaign. I was uh, brought in after the Kickstarter to sort of find the way forward for the project and figure out what we're doing next. This was for the single board computer, the first single board computer? Correct. So although the Pine64 Model A was commercially a significant success, from a marketing and community perspective, it didn't go particularly uh, well. So at that time, there was a lot of sort of soul searching within the project, trying to figure out what's the next step, if there is a next step actually for, for a short period of time. And I was brought on board, the founder, TLM, he flew into London where I lived at a time. He met me for, for a pint and he said, so what do you think? Do you think we can build a community, run this thing, and and take it forward? And I said, yeah, I think it's you know it's it's doable. Nothing is lost at this point in time. We can totally give it a go. And we decided to uh, to pursue a number of other pro- uh, products. How was that first board a failure? I just out of curiosity, from a community standpoint. Right. So the first point of failure was that although uh, TL is an excellent engineer and a very uh, well-established sort of businessman, uh, entrepreneur. He, at the time, had very little marketing capabilities of his own. So what they did, him and the, then the, co- and the co-founder, was they basically hired a marketing company to run the Kickstarter. And probably he wasn't even fully aware of where they're going to take this. And Instead of the vision, which was always there, you know, to build a piece of hardware and build a software community around it, bringing um, 
uh, developers on board. What happened was that the the advertisement went out as an end user finished product. So that brought in, in a sense, the wrong crowd initially of people who experienced this sort of a Raspberry Pi sort of experience out of the box, which certainly was not the case at the time. And, and the idea of that first board was to build a 60, at the time Raspberry Pis were only 32-bit ARM computers, and the idea was to build a 64-bit single board computer that was maybe more open or just more community driven at the time. More community driven, uh, aimed at a different. So the idea was to have it aimed at a different sort of demographic, to have it aimed at developers who would really work on the 64-bit architecture on ARM, which wasn't really that well established at the time. Ah, and and the idea is if there's hardware, then you can start kickstart that community, and then you got a bunch of consumers in who just wanted to run Plex and emulators on their A64 boards, and were disappointed because it was a little it was a little raw still. This is absolutely what happened in a nutshell. Okay. Yes. So, you know, soon after the Kickstarter, there was definitely you know a sense of so what do we do now, right? Because the product is good, the board was good, the developers who received it were quite happy. The issue were all the other people who now had a negative experience because they couldn't do all the things that they expected to be able to to do with it. And then they felt, uh, you know, uh, lied to. So when I was brought in, you know, I was there as a, as a sort of liaison between the community, that being both the development community as well as regular end users and the Pine Store, the, the, the company, to sort of figure out where, we, where we're going uh, collectively. And from there on, if we could um, step back to uh, the period before the Kickstarter for just a minute, uh, I know TL. I was I was surprised to find out TL was responsible for the Popcorn Hour, which is a name I haven't seen in a long time. But I'm curious if his experience with that product informed or kind of led to him veering in this direction. Because I, I I never owned one myself, but it was one of the first really big mm-hmm. kind of kind of phenomenons in the mm-hmm. in the set-top kind of media player space, you know, like the early Apple TV, Roku, that type of stuff. Like, I I remember, like, anecdotally just seeing people all over the place super passionate about their popcorn hours. And I'm curious, A, was there anything, like, open source and community-oriented about the popcorn hour? And B, you know, is that that kind of what led to TL going in this direction? Yeah, for sure it did. I mean, I've... I don't know the story in its entirety. You would have to ask him uh, about this, I suppose. But it's my understanding that what happened was that, obviously, when he was doing the Popcorn Hour video audio players at the time, there were a number of them which gathered a significant following. And among those who who participated were Linux developers and open source developers. And they brought open software to these SOCs. I believe these were quite uh, specialized Sigma SOCs used in these devices. And uh, I know for a fact that TL saw that a product which exists, which is in a sense a finished product on launch, those were very much end-user devices from the from the get-go. These weren't, uh, these were sort of a different, they were aimed at a different audience, uh, at audiophiles uh, specifically. He saw that a device can be made better or improved upon by having open source community members kind of work on it. And uh, so in this way, the company opened up a little bit as well because they saw you know, how, th- how this contribution is ultimately also profitable 
to them, which isn't completely obvious if you're running this sort of company. You know, it may seem obvious to us now, especially from where I'm saying. But uh, back then, especially back then in in Asia, this wasn't necessarily a very obvious decision and choice to make, right? So they went to Sigma. They said, you know, how much of this information can we disclose? How much can we provide it to community members? And you know, ultimately, this for certainly this experience, this first encounter with open source and how it can make an existing product uh, better and extend its lifetime, uh, has certainly given him a sort of an idea to to explore the open source world further. It's hard to remember now, but at that time, the other people that were building hardware that was based on Linux were actively working against the communities in a lot of cases, like the router manufacturers and and th- those folks were just they weren't they weren't breaking the the rules of the license, but they were make they were mm-hmm. definitely weren't making it easy to participate for mm-hmm. end users, and that was the that was I think the exciting thing to me about Popcorn Hour. The community first approach is something that we've talked to a bunch of projects at this time, and there's a handful of communities that actually work that that operate that way. It's interesting. Like, is does that go all the way down to like product decisions and what direction you're going to go next, or like wh- where does the line between what you all want to do internally and what the community wants to do? How do you decide where that line is? I guess is the is the first place to start. Uh, excellent question. So this has shifted over the years. Right now, the project is very large. Initially, when we started and when I kind of got into the position of community manager and brought in people from established projects on board, as well as community developers and kind of huddled them together and said, so what do you guys want to do next? And uh, what we used to do was we built a piece of hardware. We sent it out to the developers. They gave direct feedback. They told us what they what they want. Uh, this was this came back to us. And then when we had something that would resemble a, an early prototype. We would share it with the community and hear the community's feedback, so like end users' feedback. And this worked for a time. In, in terms of scale, it becomes quite difficult when you have a lot of people who want to chip in and, and, and have their say. And then, you know, when you ask a question, when you ask people a question, you have to be sure that you want to hear the answer. So like... Um, Last thing which we did where we involved the entire community was the was the keyboard for the for the Pinephone and the Pinephone Pro. And that made us realize how difficult it is sometime now with the size of the project to open it up to discussion, especially something as subjective as a, as a keyboard layout and all the things that people want to see in such a thing. It becomes quite overwhelming when, when you get so much feedback and uh, you have to figure out Right now we ask, so now we are in this position where if you know if we wouldn't ask, we could have gone and done something that we thought was right. But now that we ask, we have to incorporate some of this feedback and and the best of it. So we felt obliged to to do so, but this has ultimately delayed the the, the keyboard project by I don't remember by, by nearly a year. Um, so, but in principle, what we do right now internally is we we come up with an idea of what we want to do so let's say it's a let's say it's another phone or whatever it is that we want to do so we have an idea for a phone and then we look around and see what components are available to us at a reasonable price and uh what we can be sure is going to be available to us three years down the down the road as well and then we establish kind of we, we make contact with the with the vendors and stuff like that. We usually we have boots on the ground in Shenzhen, so we have people in Shenzhen. So it's you know we like to have direct contact with the vendors to to, to talk to them and have a proper understanding of how their supply chain uh, looks like. So yeah, so we, we figure out what we what we want to do, what we can base it upon. 
only then do we bring in developers from within the closest circle to, to talk about it, right? We don't open everything up to the choice of even the closest community, because if you ask, especially the very techie people, you know, what would you like to see in like in your next phone? You're gonna hear that they want really high-end stuff and you know, all of these sort of things, but ultimately nobody's gonna buy it. So we make some of the business decision quite early about what makes sense for us to make, but then, you know, choice of cameras, choice of LCD panel, choice of modem even, and stuff like that. This is largely up to debate with the closest of the closest, and then we open it further and further and further, and then we kind of present it to the community uh, broadly. It's it's interesting because, you know, on the software projects that are more community-driven, it's a feature choice, right? It's like, do, hey, do we add support for this file format or something like that? For, yeah. for you all, your choices are so tied to what hardware is available and what fits into the, like, you know, stuff like thermal budgets. And, and like, it, it, it's incredibly, it, it, to me, it's the thing that makes this project so neat is that the, there's any community involvement at all in the hardware decisions and, and that side of it. And you're not just saying, hey, here's the hardware platform we built this time, which is essentially what Raspberry Pi does, right? They're like, hey, here's what we built. See what you all can, let's see what you all can do with it. And then we'll figure out what you've done and integrate that stuff into the next rev. Yeah, I, I, I kind of I want to read a quote real quick from your philosophy page. I mean, you've touched on this pretty directly already, but still just to see it stated kind of dogmatically is just, just really unique for this kind of project. We usually announce what we're working on well ahead of the shipping date, many months before a device is released so that you have plenty of time to request product features, suggest changes, ask for and make changes to documentation, etc before the first iteration of the device rolls off the factory line. So mm-hmm. I'm curious, is this the type of thing that you think maybe is only possible in recent years now that we're in this age of kind of rapid prototyping and like kind of affordable, smaller batch hardware manufacturing? I mean, is this, is this the type of thing that it seems like would have been impossible like a decade ago? Um Yes, certainly. I mean, f- for sure, this has a lot to do with it. The other thing which, you know, we touched on TL, the, the, the founder of Pine64. A part of the reason why we are able to do this is because we have the abilities to turn around products very quickly in a prototype fashion in Shenzhen in China, ultimately, right? So we can have three or four or five prototypes or something built with very different uh, components inside them. Now, these are outrageously expensive if you're building one of something. So, you know, it's it's sometimes it's good to build, you know, three or four different options of potential hardware. And especially if it's quite modular, then developers can basically just, you know, mail it between each other or, or FedEx it between each other and kind of take a look at the different uh, versions and options which they, which they have. Yeah. Uh, so yes, it has become possible probably in the, in the past uh, five years, but I don't think it is possible to, uh, especially when you have something as complex as a, as a phone, I don't think, you know, rapid prototyping helps much here. You have to have access to um, to the actual vendors and people who who know that there is a reason why you want to build one or five of something, right? Because they know that you're going to come back and have 100, 1,000, 10,000, or however many 100,000 uh, units later, yeah. The relationships with the people that run the factories, it turns out, <laughs> I guess in order to get them to make one of them for you, you have, you have to, con- they have to know you're going to come back and make it worth their time later. Yes, yes. Because even if a prototype costs, say, a tenfold or twentyfold of of the finished product, ultimately you're taking up a lot of time also of their 
staff and engineers. So um, it's if if you are not somebody who has a track record, especially these days after the pandemic, when a lot of companies, a lot of uh, factories in China have gone out of business during the pandemic, right? They 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 have established clients. Uh, you know, many of them are not super keen on uh, on taking on experimental uh, hardware. Well, yeah, new risk. It's and a risk averse business to yeah. start with, right? How many people work for Pine sixty four? Like, how many people are involved with the, the are part of the full time business now? There's a lot in the United States. You have uh, three people, including TL. Here in Europe, you have two people, one me being included. But then Malaysia uh, is where where there's R and D, and there's quite a few people working there. Uh, Hong Kong is where the main office is currently. There's quite a few people working there. That's where you have support dispatch and stuff like that and then there's contractors in Shenzhen who including like scouts and people who who we have a long running relationship for like contact with uh, with uh, vendors and uh, other distributions uh, distributors and stuff and those folks find distributors and factories and like logistics stuff for, sh- for shipping finished project and and stuff like that correct yes that's exactly it so uh they they are contracted, but you know many of them have been with us for, for for many years. Is there somebody in the in that decision chain who is like the the go or no go? The the somebody has to make the decision. Finally, we're we're not getting a consensus from the community or the internal teams. Are there you know hierarchies for we're the hardware side, we're the software side, and stuff like that? Yes, there is a there is a person who gets to say yes, we're doing it, or no, we're not doing it, and that is definitely TL. Then there's uh, people like myself and the the current community, Marek Kraus, who get to have a significant say in whether something is going forward, and you know, pitch in ideas and review stuff as it's coming in and see if it makes any sense to continue with a particular project. But this is quite this is quite fluid. There have been a few instances, even within the recent year, where two or three trusted community developers basically overruled what we wanted to do internally with relationship to, to the hardware, uh, something which required uh, us to pay a significant amount of extra money uh, for, for, for a feature. But ultimately, that feature found itself into the product. And... Um, so, so yes, there is a cutoff point, which is TL saying, we cannot do this. It's impossible to do this. But there's always a debate. Sometimes these debates get, uh, get quite heated, and sometimes uh, they uh, leak into the public as well. And uh, these are the sort of things that happen, yeah. But boot ROMs on phones and things like that? Yes. That's how, that's how you know you've arrived as an open project, when, when drama is spilling out into blog posts as people Correct. take sides. <laughs> yeah. Yes. For the record... Uh, Martin Bram and I met at Fostum this year and we had a beer and everything's fine. So to anyone listening, we're all good. I was going to say, so for people who aren't, aren't super dialed into the scene on this particular, like this was really low key scene drama for, for oh, yeah. Linux projects in our, in our experience. Um, Very polite, extremely polite. 
And, and the concern was about bootloaders and how it would apply to alternate operating systems on the Pine Phone. We, I realize now, as we're talking about the Pine Phone, we haven't actually talked about the kind of scope and scale of the product offering that Pine64 is doing yet. Yeah, the, the range, the breadth of the product offering is kind of astonishing to me. I mean, like you said, the, you know, the initial Kickstarter was for a small board computer. Mm-hmm. You've got products like, for example, the, your desktop power, USB power supply. Mm-hmm. I love the kind of... There's a bit of an industrial look to it. You know, it's got a a screen that literally tells you the voltage and amperage of all Mm -hmm. USB ports on there. It looks like something that would have been on like my my grandfather was a machinist and it was like the kind of equipment he might use, you know. But but also now you've you've shifted toward you've got a smartwatch, you've got earbuds on the way. More more sort of like packaged consumer oriented Mm -hmm. stuff that I mean obviously still open firmware, still hackable Mm -hmm. and, and and stuff you can tinker with, but more everyday sort of carry around items was that shift toward toward things like earbuds and smartwatches was that entirely organically driven by the community or was that ever in the initial roadmap that like we're going to start with more open and then go to more consumer no i'll be i'll be completely honest with you here no the, this these weren't uh community suggested projects these are things we know the community will be keen on because it allows uh, a lot of hacking, a lot of fun things to be. I mean, the Pine Soul has become huge, for instance. The, the, the Pine Time has also become huge and on a different scale, but also huge. The earbuds, I think, uh, so the Pine Buds Pro, I think that they have a lot of potential and we have seen a lot of interest in them. But ultimately, these are, these are business decisions because the project needs to make enough money to make things that do not make money. So say the smartphones, they, for instance, do not generate a profit, right? They they are there simply because we wanted to do a smartphone, right? Similarly with the laptops, with the ARM laptops, uh, quite similarly with, with the tablets. So with the, with the PineTab V and the PineTab 2. So there needs to be things within our range that do generate the funds to do the things that, you know, that are more, more fun and definitely, the, you know, there, there's, no, um, there's no need to hide the fact that uh, the PineSoul, the PineTime, the PineBuds, as well as some of the modules are designed to generate that profit to do some of the fun things that we, the other fun things we do, yeah? Yeah, with with hardware, especially and especially with you know, since you're doing Risk Five hardware now, there's a chicken or egg situation where you have to build the hardware so that the software can exist, so that mm-hmm. the hardware can sell. Mm-hmm. And I assume that's I assume that's the point with the with the laptops and the tablets and the and the smartphones is to to build up these ecosystems for people using Linux for phones and and mm-hmm. you know so that these actually do become viable platforms at some point in the future and. And I, I assume you don't always want them to be pro- projects that are losing money. Eventually, I hope. I, I mm-hmm. assume you want them to, to drive revenue for the company. But I, I, I mean, there's definitely some products that do not need to make revenue, such as the phones, right? Yeah. We just want to see Linux on smartphones. And we want to see a future where there is an alternative to, uh, to the current operating systems, right? And one way of doing that is making sure that everybody can get uh, their hands on one if they if they want one. From the moment the, the we we conceived of the of this idea, uh, we we figured we'll pretty much sell it at 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 costs just to make sure that everybody who really wants one can 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 get one, right? So they're not losing money, but they're not generating revenue. But something has to generate revenue, and there's definitely some products that that are designed to generate revenue within the lineup. 
it, it's remarkable to me that you talk about things like the Pine Time the smartwatch as being the sort of popular volume movers, the profit yeah. generating products, because I was ready to come in here and say that your prices are just astonishingly low. <laughs> I mean, the Pine Time currently on your site is selling for twenty six ninety nine, and I looked at that and I was just like, I, I there has to be a zero missing here. Like, how is this possible? I mean, even though you say that these are successful revenue drivers, I mean... You know, I don't know how much you want to get into the business model, but I mean, are, these are, I assume, like relatively low profit margin. I mean, it's just, it seems remarkable what you're getting looking at what else is out there, you know, from, from more closed companies in, in the same space for this price. Sure. But even if, let's say, they each generate, so the so even if the Pine Soul and the Pine Time just generate a, a dollar or a dollar and a half in very large quantities, which these uh, these have had a significant uptake, you know, th this is perfectly fine. And then uh, co compute modules, while uh, Raspberry Pi compute module has been, you know, the, the standard very much in the in the West, the Sopine compute module has been taken up in significant parts of Asia, and, and, you know, for a long time now, used in everything from rail signage to slot machines and what have you. And uh, those sort of things make phones and tablets with RISC-V, uh, RISC-V processors uh, possible, yeah? So what's the common thread for all this? Is it, hey, we can get electronics manufactured like we have? Is that the, the sauce of the company or is it is it we're really good at SOCs or, you know, what connects the pine cell and the phone? Or is it just, hey, this is a thing we want to exist in the world. What what connects the pine cell and the phone and the tablet and the laptop and the SOC and the power station? Right. So there's definitely a, a maker side to this equation. You know, even things such as the phone can be dismantled. We actually, you know, if you break it, we we encourage you to fix it yourself. There's spare parts on on the website and, and stuff like that. It's I, I love that. Yeah. By the way, that's a, it's my favorite thing. It's a question of you know undoing twelve screws or whatever, and uh, you you'll be fine. You'll have it. You know, I'm, I'm not particularly technically savvy, but I've taken apart dozens of them and, and fixed many of them. They're really quite trivial to to to, to fix if if you if you drop it. You know, it's it's a question of 20 minutes for me uh, to fix one. So uh, no biggie. So, But there is also a lead thread which goes from when we create a single board computer, a single board computer is obviously st a standalone device, but it is also a basis, a platform upon which we sometimes, not always, but usually decide to build more products, right? So there are particular SOCs, which we see particularly uh, high potential in, right? Usually from SOC vendors who are more friendly or more keen to co cooperate with the, with the open source community. There's definitely, a, some of the products are, are created just because we want to see them exist. There are some products which exist because there is a need for them to exist in the business world. So this would be the, the compute modules like Sopines were massively huge. There are products which exist simply because they didn't exist before and we didn't know if there was a market for them or not, such as uh, Open Smartwatch. And it turns out that it is, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, it's, it's a phenomenal project, right? When we were talking first about the Pinesol, we, you know, nobody would understand why, you know, why would anyone want to have a a soldering iron that connects, you know, via Bluetooth to your to your desktop to display how hot the tip is 
But turns out that a lot of people want that, you know, so you never know. That specifically is a feature that my much more expensive soldering station from a company that's been making soldering irons for a hundred years mm. does not offer at anything other than like ridiculous professional level prices. So when I saw, I, 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 I it was literally the fastest time when I saw the pine sole that I've ever gone from, oh God, another thing's USB connected or another thing's Bluetooth connected. Why do we need this to, oh wow, I've hit the order button. It's going to be here in three days. That sounds fantastic. So it is a place where having smart control over your temperature actually makes a difference in how well you can solder. Also, the size of the thing and the fact that I can run off a USB power pack. Mm -hmm. So I have a portable soldering iron that doesn't use butane and works anywhere. And I won't torch my boards when I'm doing stuff with it. Is a is a It is a transformative device for me. So I, I appreciate you all a lot. I guess what I'm saying is thank you for making the Internet of Shit soldering iron. Yeah, but, uh, you know, uh, the, the Pinesel isn't the first... Uh, soldering iron to run the open operating system or the open firmware for it. There have been others, except we reached out to uh, to Ben Ralem uh, directly. We said, "Hey, we want to make one of those things. They seem like you know they seem fun. Would you like to tell us what you want to see in one of these?" And he came aboard and he told us exactly what he wanted to see in such a soldering iron. And we said, "All right, well, we'll." We'll make it happen, and here we are. And this is why it's ultimately a better soldering iron than the alternatives, which were available at the time. Is because he came in and he said, "Look, this is what people are looking in these little things." Uh, and uh, you know, he worked. He he really guided us through this, and made a, a, a very good product. Um, and then when we wanted to do the V two, we really spoke to him for months about it, to n not to make it into a gimmick, but make it into something that does what it already does better because ultimately for those who care about you know two seconds or three seconds uh, faster heat up time you know the the v2 does heat up ridiculously fast even compared to the v1 but then we thought you know what what else can we do that that would open up the possibilities with the soldering iron and you know bluetooth was one of the options I mean, I, I almost feel like you're doing a public service here because like with the Pine Soul, just like with the smartwatch, the thing is selling for $26 right now. And when mm -hmm. Will told me, I had never heard of it before until Will got one and described it to me. And I was like, well, that easily is going to be two or $300 minimum. And I looked at it, <laughs> the site, it just fell out of my chair. You know I mean? It's like I solder something maybe once a year, but at that price range and with this level of features and openness, like why wouldn't I get one, right? Like it's just... Mm -hmm. I feel like it's it's in a category where just about anybody who's even like soldering curious could grab one at fairly low risk and, and give it a shot, right? Yeah, and I mean, if you if you like Risk Five microcontrollers, it's running on a Risk Five microcontroller, and we even made a breakup board for it, which you can pick up if you want to, you know, if you want to use it as a, you know, just to learn about Risk Five as a, as a platform. I, I think it's the first Risk Five processor I had in the house. I'm reasonably sure of that. Oh, yeah? So All right, yeah. yeah. Is it fair to say the Pine Soul is sort of the breakout product in terms of market penetration? And I, I know it, like it, it rises up in Amazon search results a lot now. Is it kind of the most visible? Right. In that sense, yes. Yes. Because obviously there's relatively few people in the world who want a Linux smartphone, right? Or in general, there's a few people who want a Linux laptop and especially one which runs ARM. There's very few uh, such people still. I mean, statistics don't lie. So um, so yes, in terms of share volume, 
yes, absolutely. This is probably the the, the, the product that uh, is you know has uh, seen the most adoption throughout all sorts of circles, um, makers, and but I've seen them everywhere, literally. But uh, the pine time, the, there's a lot of people in conventions who you're gonna see wearing uh, a pine time, and you know, uh, following the pandemic, this was the first Foston when I went and just saw how many. Uh, pine phones there are in the community is completely nuts one of the cues that i had that the pine soul has achieved pretty broad penetration is that it's the one product or at least i assume at least the first one that has had a cloning problem that there are counterfeit pine souls out there now i'm sure from a design and logistics standpoint it was annoying to deal with that problem but is it is it also a little flattering that you've made something popular and and robust enough that people want to try to copy it? Of course. Of course it is flattering. We estimate that anywhere between 10 to 20 times more, uh, that there have been t- 10 to 20 times more copies sold than the original Pinesol V1. We've put in a, um, a security feature into the V2, which allows you to check whether you have a genuine device or, or not. But that's just for you. I mean, that's uh, just whether you want to support uh, us and the project or, you know, but I'm sure they're going to be able to replicate it otherwise just fine as well in a, <laughs> in a month's time or two months' time. So I was going to say how um, you say you have the, these leader products that are, that are generating revenue that support the rest of the, mm-hmm. of, of the Pine64 business. And I'm curious... You know, is it that you look at a you look at a margin that you can sell the device for, and you're like, okay, we're going to put this percentage back. Is there funding from other sources that aren't selling hardware, or is everything funded off of selling hardware at this point? Everything we we do not have as so there are internally a few principles. One is which that we do not have any that the only stakeholders are community members and developers. So we do not have anyone else exerting any type of pressure on uh, on us this is kind of and so because we do want to do weird things right if i were to go that the pine time was my idea right were i to go and pitch an open smartwatch you know in a traditional setting i, I would have been turned down it just simply did not make sense at, at the time right so no we do not have uh, other means of revenue i mean it is all hardware uh, so th- there's no other source of income I'm curious how open your hardware designs are. I mean, obviously that is a goal of the company, but I assume there are just certain legal restrictions in terms of the vendors you work with. And, and I don't know about, you know, schematics and documentation. Mm-hmm. Are there are there limits to how much you can expose to the developers mm-hmm. in terms of IP and, and proprietary technology that like the, the vendors that you work with just won't allow you to make open? This will vary from one product to the other, but in general... Because we work with developers so closely, what happens is that we will sometimes, we will usually settle only for a a component if we can get the schematic for it, right? So we will never buy something where we know that we have no contact with the vendor, we have no information about it, and no one is interested in working on it, right? So for instance, with the Pinephone Pro, we had a really lovely camera, for for the rear facing camera, which you know we could have gotten, we could have a steady supply of it, but there was no real work on it being done in Linux. Nobody really had any interest on working on it. 
we had no documentation for it. So we had to basically go and settle on something else, something which has all of this support and interest and, and, and work. So in general, with regard to openness, we make sure to get as much data as we can from the vendor, where SDKs and stuff like that are pertinent. We always get it from the vendor and make sure that this is delivered to developers. Where there hasn't been any efforts uh, made, so like uh, LCD panels, bring up of these LCD panels in Linux, uh, you know, it's, it's from the ground up. We have company representatives who basically say, yeah, we'll come in and we'll talk to the devs and we'll let the devs know, you know, you're going in the right direction, that sort of thing. Then we have, uh, with respect to the main SOC, we have very good contact with with Rockchip and now with uh, other vendors as, as well who have, uh, you know, they, they, they have been good when it comes to the open community, open source community. And then everything that is ours that we do, we document and we make it available to the community. We stop at basically providing Gerber files, which is which is the kind of the stop point. And, uh, you know, there the, the reason for it is not so much because we don't want you making your own phone. It's that we know that where we manufacture and make things, uh, we could see, you know, if... If the Pine Soul can be cloned, so can the Pine Phone with uh, with the right files uh, and much faster. Does doing development in public in the open make it harder to kill stuff as as it's going when you see it's not going to work out? Do you get to the point that you're going that you've announced something and you're like, oh, we we shouldn't be making this, and and you've had to kill stuff as you as you're in progress? Yes, absolutely. The IP cam, which we call the Cube, everybody on the team thought it's a great idea. Uh, turns out nobody's interested in in it. Uh, the SOC was great. The actual camera module was good. The design I thought was pretty solid. You could run any type of you know Linux on it and just stream from it. Or there's um, I'm blanking on it right now, but there is one dedicated uh, Linux distribution. Or basically, it's a uh, what is it called? Motion Eye is that what it's called? Which is made for basically like security cameras and stuff that could run on it. And it seemed like a great idea. You have a, you know, a, an open nanny cam or security cam. It seemed like a great idea, but uh, ultimately the interest was not there. So we did kill it off. There's very few projects that we killed off because there was no interest, however. There were a few which we had to kill off, especially during the pandemic, because there was no, no means to manufacture them. But otherwise, uh, you know, I, I think that the cube is probably the only example that comes into my head of something which we've killed off because there was no interest in it. Okay, so it is listed as out of stock on your site, so it is literally out of production, just done. It is out of production, yeah. Okay. I'll just say that we haven't really lost interest in the concept and definitely want to explore it more, but perhaps in a more modular fashion. So we made this tiny little microcontroller SBC called the AUX64, which is Linux capable. And we are developing sort of a, a, a camera module which will attach to it. So you would be able to, to, to sort of transform it into a sort of a cube's spiritual successor for those few who are interested in, in the device. Uh, I wanted to dig into just a little bit what it's like using the Pine phone because, you, you know, of all your products, obviously a phone is the most universal. You know, not everybody mm -hmm. uses a laptop or a smartwatch, mm -hmm. but everybody's got a phone. So I'm just kind of, I'm curious, especially for people who aren't Linux developers who are mm -hmm. less tinkering inclined, what the out-of-the-box experience is like with Linux on a phone. You've standardized around Manjaro. 
at this point on your phones, although I assume the other the other open phone OSs are still an option to install. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but I'm just kind of curious, like when you boot it up for the first time, in terms of, I guess, just onboarding, you know, App Store, like what the like what are the sort of common phone analogs like on there in terms of usability compared to the closed, uh, bigger, you know, Apples and, and Googles of the world? I'll tell you this. It depends on how you look at it. So it is the most successful Linux on mobile effort thus far. And the development over the past two years has just gone, you know, a very long way, right? Like we we are at a point where all key features of the original PinePhone, as well as the PinePhone Pro, although to a slightly lesser degree, are functional on the device. And from a purely hardware perspective, these are the most, some of the most open devices, period. Like even down to the modem, you can flash the modem with where where permissible, you can flash the modem on your own uh, with open firmware. How is the experience compared to say Android or iOS? I think that this is nowhere close to something you would want to give somebody who's highly dependent on either of these platforms and has never had any contact with Linux. Those people who think that we should be targeting the general population and general public, I do not agree with with, with this point of view. Depending on which numbers you believe, there's anywhere between 20 to 60 million uh, active Linux users in the world, and there are nowhere close to 20 to uh, 60 million uh, pine phones uh, out there. There's at, at best, there's a few hundred thousand pine phones out there. And I think that uh, this is a very big market in and of its own. So once we convince uh, potentially those people who already use Linux on their desktop computers uh, to have a phone with, with Linux, we can go after you know people who, who, who rely on Android or iOS in their daily life. How does it compare? It doesn't really compare particularly well is the answer. I mean, you can browse, you can set up an email client, you can make and receive calls, you can take photographs, you can do uh, some chats, which have ARM clients for, uh, for Linux. But I mean, it will not do your banking app or your travel card or whatever it is that people do on, on a daily basis with, with their Android or iOS phones. Uh, you can install Spotify on it for those who care. So, but I mean, it is, it is a different experience altogether. It, it does feel like a, a early proof of concept, regardless of which operating system you settle on. And some of these operating systems are much more polished some of these operating systems are mobile operating systems which happen to be Linux. And some of these operating systems are uh, Linux which happen to run on mobile, right? So there are uh, fractions and communities within the broader community as well uh, who require different things or want to see different things on, on, on the PinePhone, on the PinePhone Pro. I've been tempted to pick one up, honestly, just to noodle with and see what just just to get the experience. Yeah, see see where it's at because the last time I looked at a Linux phone was probably three or four years ago, and they were early prototypes of things that people weren't maybe even showing publicly, and it was rough to unusable at that point. Mm-hmm. So you know, it, it's 
there's a curve that we've seen with a lot of open source projects where things where development starts slow and then there reaches a point where the it's the typical capitalist hockey hockey puck graph right where where all of a sudden the features are coming the number of developers increases and the features go up and up do, like do you feel like you're reaching are you working toward that point or do you think you're do you see that point in the future for the pine phone or or is that a, you think further off than we should be thinking about right now that is a super difficult question. Uh, it's, uh, I, I think that our core community wants different things from the phone than, say, my wife or my mom, right? And that is a bit of a problem because the convenience that an Android phone, which is synced up to Google Cloud and all that stuff, gives you, it is, by design, is not replicable in, in, in the pine phone yeah. by, by the sort of, by the design, by the philosophy of it. So I don't know how to answer this one. I mean, I, what I, what I'll say is this, I, I hope that this iteration of the pine phone or the next iteration or the next after that, or somebody else, some other company or person who has now a pine phone gets inspired by it and creates something that will make everyone in the Linux community, in the open source community, say, oh, I want one of these things. Like, I genuinely want one. And that it will meet their needs and requirements for it. So whether we make it or somebody else make it, it to, to me personally, it doesn't really matter. As long as it's, it, it gets made, right? And everybody wants to really work on it. And there's also something to be said for just, especially in a world where people are becoming more, you know, the Cory Doctor has been yelling about privacy for 25 years at this point, but I think there's more momentum from normal users, even non-Linux users, uh, about the ownership of their own data and, and living outside of those those closed ecosystems. So, I mean, maybe, maybe there will be momentum there in the future and people are willing to sac- make a few sacrifices to get something that's off off of the Google grid or the or the Apple, uh, off of Apple's ecosystem. So, f- fingers crossed, I guess. D- do you all do user research? Like, do you do focused user research or is it more informal? Like, how, how do you decide, how do you decide which direction to go with products? How do you decide which products to support? How do you, how do you know that a product you're building for a market you're familiar, you're personally familiar with is going to work in Southeast Asia or North America or Africa or wherever else you, you care to sell stuff? Well, we don't, um, because we do not really collect any information or data. I mean, we ran a poll about a year ago asking people, how do you find your phone? Like, what do you run on it? How do you use it? Is it your daily driver? Is it uh, is it your spare phone, or is it you know? Are you disappointed with uh, with it? And is it in your you know in your drawer and you haven't picked it up for a year? I mean, you know, we we ask all sorts of questions, and this is a poll from at least a year ago. I can't remember when I put it out, and uh, I think I don't know, maybe like four or five thousand people answered or something like that. Obviously, the number of existing users is much, much greater. So a lot of this we get via a sort of a, a, almost like an osmosis by just being a part of the community and talking to people on a daily basis, just like regularly in the chat and just saying, you know, seeing what it is that people talk about, what it is that they're excited about, what is it that they want to see, what is it that they're disappointed with. I mean, ultimately we don't need to run these things because we're very much a part of the community. Like I, I check the chat every every single day and everybody who wants to, you know, chat with me, they can chat with me. But we know we don't have any like focus groups and stuff like that. 
I'm, I'm sure you can only say so much about prospective product ideas, things that may or may not happen, but are there any sort of pie in the sky goals or ideas that the team has had for product categories or spaces you'd like to get into that you either haven't yet or like would be very difficult to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are a few. <laughs> um, so we um, definitely are looking at the next uh, Pine Time and we're working extremely closely with, with the developing community around that project Infinity Time that runs on on the Pine Time and they definitely have some awesome ideas. And this is, just to be clear to anyone listening, this is quite far out uh, for us. It's, it's still, you know, months away from, from prototyping, but we're ping-ponging ideas. And in general, we are super interested in RISC-V as an architecture and where that can, uh, you know, take us in the next years. And I've spoken about this pretty openly, that we definitely... Many of the devices that you see us do, which we have already made and which we have spoken about being interested in making, which are ARM-based, we definitely will be making some of them uh, with with RISC-V processors in the future as well. So this is basically no secret. So it's just a question of which makes sense. A RISC-V watch is a really fun thing, I think, and something that I would be very keen on on seeing happen in the next uh, 18 months or so. But, uh, you know, a RISC-V laptop sounds equally fun. I mean, but it's there, there are many, many different options here. RISC-V is kind of the last big topic I wanted to ask you about. I'm curious sure. if you can speak from a kind of business and contractual standpoint about what it's like working with it. I mean, for people who don't know, RISC-V is a, it's an open source uh, architecture, kind of comparable to ARM in the mobile space in terms of capabilities, but open source and royalty-free, license-free, is that accurate? Is that an accurate way to put it? Yes. So this is accurate for the course. Okay. So... RISC-V has a lot of benefits to it, and it's super exciting for developers because they, you know, the the instruction set, the ISA for RISC-V is basically available on GitHub and they can contribute to it. And you have a chance to help evolve the platform on a very, very raw metal uh, level. So that's super interesting. From a manufacturer's perspective, RISC-V has the benefit, it has multiple uh, benefits. One is that with time, due to many more producers creating RISC-V SOCs, there's going to be more competition. And because RISC-V does not depend on a license, which you have to pay per design, these will provide more power at a lower cost to end users, right? Now, there's a lot of people, and I'm guilty of this as well, of saying that, you know, oh, RISC-V is so early and it's going to be, you know, it, it's, it's, it's coming up slowly and stuff. But if you compare how fast RISC-V is coming up or Linux is coming up on RISC-V compared to early days of ARM, I mean, this is, this is day and night. I mean, we can already run Linux in a very hacky and poor and uh, unpleasant way on RISC-V today with basically people have been so excited about it that even before there were broadly available single board computers and development platforms with RISC-V, we already had Linux on. 
I think that what we saw with Raspberry Pi and ARM in Linux happen in, what was it, 20, uh, 2012? 2012, yeah. Yeah. We're going to see RISC-V really explode all, uh, in the next five years. And I think Linux is going to be an extremely well-supported uh, operating system on the platform. And I don't necessarily want to get into the politics of, of things, but if you account for what Chinese companies can and cannot manufacture at this point in time, I think we're going to see a lot of very powerful RISC-V chips coming out of China at very reasonable prices within 24 months, giving ARM architecture a real run for its money. I'm a pretty active Debian user, and, and from what I've looked at, like the, the number of Debian packages being built for mm -hmm. RISC-V is like over 90%, I believe, at this mm -hmm. point. I mean, the, the penetration, the adoption has been kind of alarming to see yes. uh, how rapidly it's played out. Do you have a sense from a, I mean, like you've, like you've said, obviously, ARM is much more mature. It's been around longer. The SOCs are more robust and capable. But do you have a sense of how fast RISC-V RISC SOCs, at least the ones you're using, are approaching those capabilities in terms of like raw compute and, and GPU and stuff like that? Is, is it getting competitive yet? No, but it's, it will get there very, very fast. And I mean, fast as in by the end of this year. But now, I do also do not necessarily want to get too technical because I would be speaking out of turn because I am not the right person to speak about it. But there is a misconception within the community about RISC-V as well. I mean, RISC-V shares many of the hurdles that we had with ARM and still have with ARM. Just because the cores are open doesn't mean that everything around these cores is open, and it's not. Right, the SOC manufacturers can still check, check a GPU on the SOC that you have no access to internals on, right? Yeah, I, I think that's a th like like on Raspberry Pis and so forth. Like Broadcom will put something in the SOC that is completely closed and undocumented, right, and proprietary. And then you have to rely on the goodwill of said GPU. I mean, you mentioned GPU, but there could be any other things that go into these SOCs, memory controllers, what have you, then you have to rely on the goodwill of these companies that they want to cooperate with you. And to be fair, you know, I'm, I'm not going to mention any names, but there are companies that have had a terrible track record. But now that they found themselves on RISC-V platforms and they're feeling the pressure, they are more or less reluctantly going ahead and open sourcing their drivers just by the, you know, pressure, right? This is what happens. I mean, you know, um, when you go back, when we go back to ARM and look at why is the RK3399 so well supported in Linux? So that's what you have in the Pinebook Pro and the Pinefunk Pro. The reason is because Google built a Chromebook based of it a couple of years ago and Google came in and he said open source and Rockchip did because there was pressure, right? Uh, and this is a different type of pressure, but now that there is RISC-V adoption and RISC-V adoption from uh, end users and enthusiasts who apply pressure to particular companies, these companies see this, they see also maybe see some benefit in it, uh, in open sourcing. And now that there's a much bigger uptake and it's not just business who uptakes these SOCs. So um, so they're starting to open source as well. I mean, I, I, I don't want to 
jump the gun on on risk five but i do see a huge potential in risk five in uh in the next five years i would love to hear lucas where can people find out more about pine 64 and, and find out more about you so about pine 64 we we have a site for for the organization so that's pine64.org there's a blog which i and others contribute to uh, right at writing monthly news at the end of each month. And then we're on Twitter, on Mastodon, and on Telegram, where we sort of stream news and information uh, on, on the fairly regular. Thank you, Wilkash, for coming on the podcast. We'd love to have you here and, and love to learn more about Pine64. Yes, Get, getting to hear... Yeah, getting to talk to somebody who's got experience in this kind of like murky nebulous world of how electronics get made these days is always super illuminating because like, you know, we're pretty awash in inexpensive electronics these days. And I think most people sort of just their relationship is just sort of I ordered online and it shows up at my house and that's it. So hearing hearing from, you know, the prototype phase through manufacturing and especially with the community relationship model that Pine64 has, like it's just, just a fascinating look behind the curtain and how at how a lot of the stuff gets made i often say that open source hardware feels like like the kind of good early cyberpunk novels where it's like some guy in a back room yes. that has a bunch of circuits is hacking stuff together yes this is what this really feels like this feels like that in a in a not dystopian way if that makes sense i know cyberpunk's 100 inherently dystopian whatever yada I, yada i don't know if i made this comparison in that interview i may have but like any any product that feels like it would be the favorite brand of the Henry Rollins character from Johnny Mnemonic, like the <laughs> the cyberpunk mechanic guy, uh, is probably pretty cool. Yeah, and there's there's also a repairability aspect to the whole thing that I, that I really really like. So uh, please make sure you check out Pine sixty four. As we said in the interview, they they love to get contributors, whether it's people writing documentation, people requesting stuff for for new hardware. Um, it's, it was a fascinating interview, and, and thanks again to Will Cash for coming by. And that will do it for this week's episode of the show. As always, the FosPod is brought to you by Google Open Source. They bring all the value of open source to Google and all the resources of Google to open source. Matt Purdy produced this episode. And Sabrina Hill edited. Uh, thanks you all for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Foss Pod. Brad, we've reached the point of the show where we thank our patrons. We have. Thank you, patrons. Thank you, patrons. As always, if you would like to support the TechPod, you can go to patreon.com slash techpod. Again, it's patreon.com slash techpod. And for five bucks a month, you get access to the fabulous TechPod Discord, which literally inspired the show. People were talking mm -hmm. about this pine cell months and months and months ago on the TechPod Discord. And I was like, I am incredibly skeptical, as I said in the intro, incredibly skeptical of this smart. Solder. Why does a soldering mm -hmm. iron need to be smart? I have one with a dial on it that lets me set the temperature. That's all I need. I was wrong. I was very wrong. I doubt. But um, but yeah, we we um thank you all for your support oh, every yes. month. Yes, yes. Thank you to Discord, incredible resource. Not only did they turn us on to the Pine Soul when I got mine and I couldn't get it to update on my PC for some unknown USB compatibility reason, and I had to go to my laptop and compile a version of the flashing utility. Wow. To get it to work. I wouldn't have been able to get that done either without the help of people on the Discord. <laughs> just a, uh, and, just and, an endless resource. 
As always, every month, every week, we like to thank our executive producer tier patrons, including Nick Johnston, Paddle Creek Games Makers of Fractured Vale, Andrew Slosky, the Bunny Damon, sorry, the Bunny Demon, yeah, Just Wedge, Joel Krauska, Twinkle, Twinkie, twenty forty nine, David Allen, and James Kamick. Thank you all so so much. Thank you. And we will be back next week again with a regular episode. If I have time to do some reading while I'm gone, we might be able to start the Bluetooth trip. Oh, oh, I know. Maybe, maybe. Just put it out there's a possibility dabbling with forces we may not understand man Look, I'm, I'm just saying there's there are finnish danish pirates out there and we're going to find out what color their teeth are mm-hmm. and that's we're going to start with the danish pirate we're going to go through the entire history of the danish piracy and then eventually we'll get to erickson and sony making a super team <laughs> to uh to uh invent radios on the on the on the phones see y'all next week bye everybody Thank you.